We all love receiving good news. I was talking about this with Nate and Becky McGlinchey a couple of days ago, and they told me about a time when they received good news. It all started back around 1999 when Becky spent some time in Istanbul, Turkey. While she was there, there were some crazy things going on with inflation that make our inflation issues look like nothing, pale in comparison. And so she was receiving bills with incredibly high denominations, staggering the numbers that were on these bills. And she would sometimes uh, keep her money behind pictures and frames for safekeeping as you know, banks weren't necessarily as trustworthy as you'd hope. So she would stash some money in these, uh, behind these pictures in these frames. And it just so happened that there was some money she stashed behind a frame that she forgot about. Fast forward to 2015, 2016, and the McGlinchey family was in the throes of church planting, planting Bridge City Church just about 10 minutes south of here in Snohomish. If you know anything about church planting, church planting is challenging. It's hard work. There's always a degree of uncertainty. You're always wondering if, if the church is going to make it. If you're the church planter, you're wondering if I'm going to make it. Resources and funds are tight. It's a tough task. And it was during this particular season in their lives when they were looking through some pictures and found some money stashed in one of these frames. And again, these bills had incredibly high dollar amounts. So Becky decided to look up how much it was worth now, what had transpired since 1999, what had gone on with their money to see how much it was worth. She looked it up to find that it was worth 53,000 US dollars. Staggering. Good news. The kind of good news every church planter dreams of. <laughs> so she promptly went down to the Bank of America here in Snohomish, provided it to the teller. The teller was also surprised and amazed. Had to make a phone call to maybe the regional offices to confirm this. And after that phone call, she came back and told Becky that the money she had was the currency of the former Turkish government and was now worth precisely zero dollars and zero cents. <laughs> oh, have you ever had something like that happen to you? <laughs> you receive good news only to find out it's not true? Good news is only good news if it's true. Well, this morning we are going to read a passage of scripture from the Gospel of Mark. Our sermon text is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 1 records the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He lived the first 30 or so years of his life in relative obscurity. But then in his early 30s, he began his public ministry. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John, that was John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming this startling, surprising message. The kingdom of God is at hand, here and now. It has arrived. And therefore, you who hear must repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. The gospel means good news, like epic good news. Not like I passed the test, like I just found $53,000. Epic good news. Jesus proclaimed this message authoritatively. In the rest of chapter one, Jesus gathered disciples, traveled to different towns preaching the gospel, and he performed extraordinary deeds, including healing people who were sick and setting people free who were tormented by evil spirits. Then we get to chapter two, where Jesus returned to his home base in the town of Capernaum. In our passage here at the beginning of chapter two, we are going to see an extraordinary claim of good news. And we'll see some who questioned the legitimacy of this claim. We'll also see how the one who made the claim proved he had the authority to make such a claim. Good news is only good news if it's true. I'm going to read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I encourage you to follow along. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In this passage, we see why Jesus came, why he had the authority to do what he came to do, and why we should believe. First, why Jesus came. After traveling to different towns and preaching the gospel, casting out demons and healing the sick, Jesus returned to Capernaum. And as you can imagine, word about him began to spread. People were talking. People saw these amazing, extraordinary, startling deeds that Jesus was performing. They were hearing him teach in a unique way with authority. And so word about him began to spread. And as word began to spread, more and more people wanted to see this firsthand. They wanted to see for themselves 
what they were hearing about. So after he returned to Capernaum, he was in a home when a large crowd gathered around him. The crowd was so large that there was no room even at the door. And as was his priority, he preached the word to the crowd. Bible scholar James Edwards notes that crowds play an important role in the gospel of Mark. Crowds are referenced nearly 40 times before we get to Mark chapter 10. He writes, crowds form audiences for his teaching and are the object of his compassion. But Mark never describes crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and belief, as the gospel requires. In respect to understanding and faith, crowds generally demonstrate passivity. The single most common attribute of crowds in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. But while the crowd obstructed access to Jesus on this day, the paralytic and his friends were not going to be denied. Why? Well, you can imagine how hard life was for this man. Suffering from paralysis, he could not work. He could not do many things for himself. He was completely and utterly dependent upon other people. This was a difficult and hard life. But this was his chance. He, like many others, had heard the rumors of this man who was performing these miraculous deeds, healing people who were sick. And he thought, this is it. This is my chance. And his friends were willing to help him. His friends were willing to carry him to Jesus, believing that Jesus could do something that no one else could. And so when they got to the house that was crowded, overflowing with people, they could not get to Jesus, but they refused to give up. They were going to get to Jesus. So they went to the roof. Roofs in ancient Palestine were typically flat and accessible by outside stone staircases. So after climbing the stone staircase outside the house, they dug through the roof, making an opening large enough to lower their friend down to Jesus. And when he was lowered in front of Jesus, we read that Jesus saw their faith. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't it seem like faith is a hard thing to see? How do you see someone's faith? Did Jesus have special x-ray vision whereby he could see something that was invisible to everyone else? I don't think so. He saw their faith in their actions. Friends, faith is demonstrated through our actions. Faith is seen in our deeds. Faith is visible when we demonstrate in our lives that we are trusting in the Lord. Their faith was evident in their absolute resolve and commitment to get to Jesus because they believed he had the power to bring the healing that they sought. There's a difference between the crowd who look at Jesus passively and someone who goes to Jesus 
with faith, believing he is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. Jesus wasn't annoyed by the interruption. He wasn't angry about the hole they made in the roof. And he wasn't dismissive as if this man was less important than the crowd. What are you doing? Don't you see all these people I'm trying to talk to? No. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I wonder what the man was thinking at that point. You do know why I'm here, right? (laughs) Clearly you can see my situation, my need. I've heard about you, what you can do. Certainly his reason for coming to Jesus was obvious. He heard that Jesus was able to heal and he believed Jesus could heal him. But he didn't make a verbal request. So in this case, Jesus was able to speak first, revealing something very important. The first thing he addressed was not the man's paralysis. Instead, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He did not address his physical condition first, but rather his spiritual condition. Whether the man understood it or not, Jesus delivered epic good news, demonstrating compassion and grace. Why do I say that? Though the man may have thought his greatest need was a remedy for his physical condition, Jesus knew better. Jesus knew his true greatest need was a remedy for his spiritual condition. If Jesus healed the man of his paralysis but did not forgive his sins, then the healing he experienced would be short-lived. His physical problem kept him from walking. His sin problem kept him from God. Sin separates us from God, the one who made us, the one who made us to know, enjoy, and glorify him. Sin removes us from the realm of life with God and places us in the realm of death apart from God. God is the righteous judge of all the earth, and our sin brings us under his just condemnation. God is the one who made us. God is the one who gives us good and righteous commands for us to follow and to obey. And every single one of us has fallen short. Every single one of us has disobeyed God's good commands. No one is perfectly obeyed. We're all guilty. We've all fallen short. And our sin puts us at enmity with God. We cannot fix our sin problem, but we desperately need our sins to be forgiven. Our sins are not minor offenses. They're not akin to jaywalking. They are akin to high treason against our God and our King. Friend, you might be tempted to think that your biggest problem is something other 
than your sin problem. Perhaps you've suffered a physical ailment or a sickness. Maybe you've endured financial hardship and stress related to finances. Maybe you've experienced broken relationships with family members or friends. Maybe you have a terrible boss or terrible coworkers who make your life miserable. You might have a specific problem in mind that if it were resolved or just went away, then things would be okay and life would be good. But Jesus reminds us that though we may have many problems in this life, our biggest problem is our sin problem. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no peace with God. And when you do not have peace with God, your other problems pale in comparison. Do you see how big of a problem this is? Do you know that this is your biggest problem? Do you know your greatest need is a remedy for this problem? We desperately need peace with God. And Jesus came to address our sin problem. When he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. He delivered epic good news that was not only good news for him, but good news for us. Why is that? Well, the second thing we see is why Jesus had the authority to do what he came to do. When Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven, the scribes were angry. Who were the scribes? The scribes were Jewish religious leaders who diligently studied and copied the Old Testament scriptures. They were experts in the law of God. And when they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, they thought, who does he think he is? This man is blaspheming. But why? Why was their immediate response, he is blaspheming? When he simply said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Next week, we are going to begin a new sermon series going through a selection of the Psalms. And we are looking forward to this sermon series and all of the elders will be preaching during this sermon series. And uh, one of our elders, Aaron, who was just up here a moment ago, is going to be preaching Psalm 51. It's going to be a wonderfully encouraging sermon. I'm not going to steal all of Aaron's thunder, but there is one verse in that Psalm which is particularly relevant to our passage today. Psalm 51 was written by David after a massive moral failure. We read about this failure in 2 Samuel 11. We see that David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba while her husband Uriah was off at war fighting for Israel and King David. When she told him that she was pregnant, he tried to cover his sin by bringing her husband back from war so that he would lay with his wife. But because he was an honorable man, he would not do so while his fellow Israelites were off at war. And so David resorted to instructing Abner, the commander of the army, to uh, intentionally put Uriah in harm's way so that he would be killed in battle, which happened. David then took Bathsheba into his house and she became his wife as if he was doing a gracious thing by marrying this widow. 
God then sent Nathan the prophet to rebuke David for his egregious sins. And David finally acknowledged his sins and poured out his heart before God. Psalm 51 was his prayer of confession after this took place. And what is relevant for our passage today is what David wrote in verse 4. In Psalm 51, verse 4, David said to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I don't know about you, but when I read that, my first reaction is, really? Against you, you only have I sinned? How can he possibly say that? Clearly, he sinned against Bathsheba by causing her to be unfaithful to her husband. Clearly, he sinned against Uriah by stealing his wife and then giving his death sentence to Abner. Clearly, he sinned against all the people of Israel by abusing his authority for his own selfish purposes when he should have been leading his men into battle in the first place. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight? Really? I do not believe David was saying that he had not wronged any of these other people but he was emphatically saying that all his sin was ultimately and finally against God. Friends, all our sins that we commit are ultimately and finally against God, the one who made us in his image to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to obey him, to glorify him. All our sins are acts of rebellion and treason against him. All our sins, including all the sins of the man who was brought before him that day. When Jesus looked at the paralytic and said, take heart, my son, Your sins are forgiven. He was making an extraordinary claim. He was saying, all your sins are ultimately and finally a transgression against me, and therefore all your sins are mine to forgive. The scribes were right in saying that only God can forgive the totality of someone's sins but they failed to see who was right in front of them. Jesus was unequivocally making a claim to have authority that belonged to God. He has the authority to do what he came to do. He has the authority to forgive sins because he is God and therefore all sins are ultimately and finally against him. They are his to forgive. If it was true for the paralytic that all his sins were Jesus's to forgive, then it is true for you and me that our sins are his to forgive as well. Friend, all your sins are transgressions against Christ, and therefore all your sins are his to forgive. The good news, the gospel, is that God saves sinners like us in Jesus Christ. How? How? by sending Christ into the world as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And Jesus, unlike us, lived a life without sin. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And he went to the cross willingly to take the punishment for our sin in our place. 
Not only did he suffer physically, not only did he suffer humiliation, but he also endured the wrath of God which was poured out for him in the place of all God's people. Christ went to the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that those who trust in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. If you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, I encourage you, I exhort you, believe in Christ and be saved. You need your sins to forgiven, to be forgiven. And Christ is the only one who can forgive your sins. Go to Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins. When Jesus declared this epic good news to the paralytic, the scribe said, he can't do that. That is blasphemy. Who does he think he is? God? In other words, they did not believe that he had the authority to deliver the good news he declared to the man. Remember, good news is only good news if it is true. And that brings us to our final point, why we should believe. Why should we believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive all sins? And why should we believe that he forgives all our sins when we go to him for forgiveness? Well, the response to Jesus to the disbelief of the scribes is actually quite amazing. Jesus is not obligated to prove himself to us. Yet what do we see here? Though he is not obligated to prove himself, he did so for our sake. Listen again to what he said in verse six. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says of the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately the man was healed of paralysis and indeed picked up his mat and went home. Do you see that the purpose of the healing miracle was to convince his audience and ultimately all the readers of this gospel, including us, that he did have the authority to forgive sins? He made an extraordinary claim, offering incredible hope, and he had the authority to do so. But because we are slow to believe, he provided convincing evidence for our sake, not his. But I want us to take a moment to look a little closer at the question Jesus asked before he healed the man. In verse nine, he said, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? How would you answer that question? Seems like there's a couple different ways we could go with that, doesn't it? Maybe he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Maybe he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Which is easier? I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I think what Jesus was doing, I think the point that he was making is that the claim that the man's sins were forgiven was not falsifiable from a human perspective. What human could falsify or verify that the man's sins were actually forgiven? Who can know that? Right, only God knows that. So to prove he did have the authority to forgive the man's sins, he did something that was verifiable, that was observable. They were able to observe and see the man suffered from paralysis. Probably a lot of people in the crowd that day knew the man. And Jesus was able to say, get up and walk. And the man, boom, immediately got up and walked. They could all see, they could verify, they could observe. He did something verifiable to prove the thing that he did that was hard to verify. Again, he did this 
for our sake. Now, regardless of what Jesus meant when he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, arise and get up and walk. He knew which would be harder to do. What do I mean? Well, we see in the Old Testament that whenever the people of Israel approached God for the forgiveness of their sins, blood was shed. A sacrifice was required. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.22, which says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant was not sufficient in and of itself. Listen to what the author of Hebrews said a few verses later in Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All the sacrifices made by the people of Israel were never sufficient in and of themselves to do away with sins. But they were meant to point to a better sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Jesus knew that for the man's sins to truly be forgiven, there would be a cost. Blood would need to be shed and a perfect sacrifice would need to be made. Jesus knew he was the sacrifice. When Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven, he was telling him, I will shed my blood for you. In Matthew 26, the night before he died on the cross, Jesus took a cup filled with wine and handed it to his disciples. And in verse 28, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus established a new and better covenant through his body which was broken and his blood which was shed on the cross for the forgiveness, the sins of his people. What is, harder to, what is harder to do? Your sins are forgiven, rise and get up and walk. Based on what was required of Jesus to forgive sins, I would say declaring his sins to be forgiven was much harder. We should believe that he has the authority to forgive all our sins because he proved himself that day in Capernaum. And we should have confidence that he forgives all the sins of those who believe in him because of the blood he shed on the cross at Calvary. But that is not all. Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. But how do we know that his sacrifice was acceptable to God? In other words, what does the death of Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? Why should we believe that his death has anything to do with us and our sins here today? Friends, this is, why, this is where we look to the resurrection. If Jesus died on the cross and that was the end of the story, then we would have no reason to believe that his sacrifice paid the price for our sins. Paul made this very point in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he wrote, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he just died on the cross, that was it. We'd have no reason to believe that he accomplished anything for us. 
But through his resurrection, God vindicated Jesus and demonstrated that he accepted his sacrifice as payment for the sins of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23, Paul went on to say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ. We can be confident, confident that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all our sins because God has demonstrated that he accepts the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the definitive proof that the good news is true. The healing of the paralytic also pointed forward to the day when those who belong to Jesus will receive new bodies, free from all sickness, disease, brokenness, and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 57, we read, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are the one true and living God. We confess that we are those who have sinned against you, disobeyed your good commands. We are guilty. We are in need of forgiveness. And we thank you and we praise you for the gospel, the good news that you sent Christ into the world to save sinners such as us. We thank you, Lord, that Christ lived a life without sin so that he could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice at the cross whereby he paid the price for the sins of all his people. We thank you and praise you for the resurrection whereby you vindicated Christ and demonstrated that you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf we thank you and praise you that all of us can go to Jesus to receive the forgiveness of sins that we so desperately need. And we thank you, Lord, that as those whose sins have been forgiven, we look forward to the gift of eternal life with you in your kingdom, whereby we will receive new glorious bodies, not subject to sickness, not subject to disease, not subject to brokenness and death but imperishable bodies whereby we will be able to worship you and enjoy you and glorify you for all of eternity. Uh, we thank you and praise you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.